0: Welcome to Ocean View School. This is where Solano Community Church meets uh, for Sunday worship, and we are glad that you could be with us this evening. As part of what we're calling our 2013 Cedars Project initiative, Solano Community Church is allocating additional time and resources to our Gospel Academy. The goal of the Gospel Academy is to help ground Christians, whether new to the faith or long established, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. that They might be empowered to embody uh, Christ-likeness in their families, their church, their workplace, their community, and wherever God has placed them. The Gospel Academy consists of four courses entitled, Gospel, Bible, Theology, and Mission as well as elective courses on such subjects as exploring Christianity, marriage, parenting, and more. And if you are interested in the Gospel Academy, there are brochures on the back table that have uh, more detailed information on it. But as part of the Gospel Academy, we also hope to sponsor an annual lecture series to encourage further these discipleship aims. It's always a little cheeky to call your first one the first annual But uh, we are going to step out on faith and do that. Uh, We are honored, and as a former Trinity student and uh, graduate and student of our speaker, I am much more than honored, excited, ecstatic, enthusiastic, overjoyed that our first guest is Dr. D.A. Carson. Grateful that you're here. Dr. Carson is Research Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. He is author or co author of over fifty seven books, including the award winning The Gagging of God, An Introduction to the New Testament, Christ and Culture Revisited, and The Intolerance of Tolerance. And I want to highlight that he'll be speaking on the same subject of that latter book, Intolerance of Tolerance, tomorrow night. There are flyers tomorrow night on the Cal campus at seven thirty PM in Wheeler Hall. Uh, You can check on our website for more information. You can grab some of these. We've got a number of these still left in the back. If you have friends, seekers, people interested in Christian things, this is a great discussion starter. I am convinced that this is a topic that really could be one around which you can have some meaningful conversations with the people in your life uh, who have not yet found Christ. And so I encourage you to take advantage of that. And tomorrow, to be praying and inviting uh, tomorrow night to Wheeler Hall at 7.30. Going on with his bio, he's a member of the Tyndale Fellowship for Biblical Research, the Society for Biblical Literature, and numerous other academic societies, and is co-founder with Timothy Keller of the Gospel Coalition. He has served as a pastor and is an active guest lecturer in church and academic settings around the world. Dr. Carson is married to Joy, and they reside in Libertyville, Illinois, and they have two grown children. Tonight, we have asked Him to speak on Revelation 21 and 22, because, quite simply, uh, we need to hear it. While the Scripture calls us to set our minds on the things above, we find all too often that our attentions are drawn primarily to the things below. And I think in our American culture, that's even more the case. We have lots of distractions. And yet, the New Testament... Uh, calls us to keep our minds focused on heavenly things, on the future. And so tonight we have a great opportunity to, uh, to, to maybe have a little bit of a corrective to our thinking. Tonight's format will include a lecture followed by question and answer time. We'll have a mic here uh, when the lecture's over, and uh, as people line up to ask questions, we'll just take them in that order. I want to let you know also that this is being recorded. A number of people have asked if it would be recorded so that they could listen to it, and we will be making that available, and also just to be aware uh, as you're listening that it is being recorded. And with that, I'm going to open up in prayer, and then I'll invite Dr. Carson to share with us. We declare to you, Lord, that we are here and ready to learn. We ask that your Spirit might move powerfully among us, and I in particular pray for uh, each person for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened. Lord, we know that in many cases it's in this kind of a setting where we're in a conference or in a lecture when uh, monumental shifts take place in our hearts and our minds, our understanding of the gospel, and we ask that that would be taking place tonight. I pray for each one of us as our eyes and ears are open to the glories of heaven, We ask that you would invade our hearts and souls with uh, your spirit and guide us into right thinking, deeper understanding of the gospel, greater love for Jesus Christ. That at the end we might walk out of here more like him than when when we first came in. We ask your hand upon Dr. Carson that you would enable him and work through his tremendous gifting to bless us this evening. We pray in Christ's name.
1: Amen. It's an enormous privilege for me to join you here in the San Francisco area. I sometimes point to people like Andrew Hoffman and say that if all of Trinity's graduates were like Andrew, then we would be the largest seminary in the world. Uh, So it's it's a, a privilege to come home, as it were, to the local church and see what the Lord is doing in this place. Now, if you have your Bibles or a suitable cell phone with a Bible on it. Uh, You might want to open to Revelation 21 and 22, and in a few moments I'll read all of chapter 21 and the first few verses of chapter 22. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust corrode and where thieves break through and steal, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not corrode, where thieves do not break through and steal. For, he says, and this is the point, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, that's just about the opposite of the way we normally think. We normally think, guard your heart, because that's the direction in which you'll go. And elsewhere, the Bible does say that. The Bible says, guard your heart, for out of it all are the wellsprings of life. But that's not what this passage in the Sermon on the Mount says. That passage says, choose your treasure, because your heart will value your treasure and go after the treasure. So the thing that you value the most is what your imagination will fantasize over. It's what you'll think about. It's what you'll give money to. It's what you'll devote your life to. So I'm persuaded that one of the most urgent needs in the church today, especially in the Western world, is that we come to value the new heaven and the new earth more, because that way you'll be pursuing it. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Otherwise, the prospect of new heaven and a new earth for, for Christians becomes a creedal point. But it's not something that we're passionate about. It's, it's something that we sort of accept as part of our confession, but it's not what we dream about, what we're pressing toward. I think that part of our problem is that we have sometimes been influenced by these little cartoons that you see from time to time, line drawings on what heaven is like. And you find people dressed in white nightgowns, s- sitting on a white cloud, playing a harp. And that that 's supposed to represent heaven, you know after a billion years of that i 'm not sure i 'd want to be there you know, if, if that 's if that's the sum total of heaven it's it 's a bit anemic I, besides i don 't look good in white uh, it, it's, its just is not the, the way I want to spend eternity Do do do, do, do you see but when you actually come to the, to, to the array of, of portraits of what the new heaven and the new earth will be like, the, the, the array of images that, that are cast up by Scripture is, is simply phenomenal, quite apart from the passage that we're about to look at. Um, for example, consider the parable of the talents where Jesus envisages, in Matthew chapter 25, giving out millions and millions and millions of dollars to his slaves to to invest. They're supposed to improve the master's assets. And and when he comes back, some of them have been really quite productive. And he says to them, well done, good and faithful slave. You've been faithful over a few things. Now I'll put you in charge of many things. What? What? The new heaven and the new earth is a place where you're going to get a real job. Here you've been responsible for, all, for only a, a few things, you know, just millions and millions and millions. But, but there you will finally get a, a real job. And that's part of the imagery of heaven. And in, in the passage in front of us, we'll find, we'll find several images that are melded together. Let me mention one more that we've sometimes forgotten. This harp business, you know, when we think of a harp, it's a great big instrument like that where you sit in front of it and pull it between your legs and press pedals with your feet and strum with your fingers. And, you know, I, I, I enjoy symphonic orchestras. And in a decent symphony, you want to have at least one harp present. Fair enough. But, but usually harps are, are not instruments that resonate in our minds with great joy. Whereas in ancient Israel, the word used for harp didn't signify anything like one of these great big things. It it was an instrument of joy such that, for example, when Israel goes off into captivity at the time of the Babylonian superpower, um, we're told, by the rivers of Zion, there we hung up our harps. Our captor said, sing us a song of Zion. How can we sing a song of Zion in a strange land? In other words, they want to get rid of the instruments of joy. That, that, That just doesn't make any sense. There's no joy left anymore. In the book of Revelation, when Christ finally comes and dies and rises again so as to break the seals that unpack all of history and bring all of God's purposes together in judgment and blessing, then all the harps come down. All the harps are being played again. The angels of heaven are playing harps, an instrument of joy. What in your subculture is an instrument of joy? Oh, that varies hugely from subculture to subculture. I I know that. But in much of America, even if you're not given to bluegrass, for example, it's pretty hard not to be slightly happy when a really good banjo player gets going. You know, it's it's one of the reasons why you don't hear a lot of banjos at funerals. You know, it just seems inappropriate somehow. So, so so instead of thinking of puffy white clouds where you're playing one of these big harps, think banjos. In other words, it's, it's a place of astonishing joy. That's one of the images that's, that, that's cast up by Scripture of, of what the new heaven and the new earth will be like. Joy that is unfathomable. Now listen to this language. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper, and the city pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is its Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will face him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, and the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Now, clearly, this is not typical contemporary writing. It belongs to a genre of literature that no one uses anymore. It's called apocalyptic. Some years ago, a friend of mine was passing out free New Testaments on a university campus in England. And um, on this occasion, he gave a copy of the New Testament to someone who had never held a Bible in his hand at all, had never read the New Testament. It was strange literature to him. But he gave out these free copies on condition that somebody would agree to read it. And after some months, he came across this chap again and said, did you read that book I gave you? Yeah, yeah, I did. What did you make of it? Well, it was a bit repetitive at the front end, you know. They, they seemed to tell the same story, more or less, four times. But, but, but I sure like that bit of science fiction at the end. And you can see what's going on in his head. He's trying to find a category to explain all this kind of symbolism. Do you see? I have a sister who was a missionary for quite a while in Papua New Guinea. In a tribe that was pre-Stone Age in its technology. By pre-stone age, I mean that even their arrowheads and spearheads didn't use stones. Um, They used hardwood like teak on bamboo shafts. So in terms of technology, it was a very, very primitive tribe. And um, I could tell you a lot of stories from that occasion. But suppose now one of these tribals came out and lived with you, and you are a trained linguist. And your job now is to master that language from this tribal and reduce it to writing. It's never been done before. There are still hundreds of languages in Papua New Guinea that have not been reduced to writing, although increasingly now there are cell phones there, but that's another story. But, but still, still, you've got a tribal now who, whose language has never been reduced to writing, and you spend five years working with this tribal to reduce the language to writing and learn to speak it as fluently as the tribal. Now, go back 40 years when my sister was there, without cell phones. To get in, it was by Jeep, and then canoe, and then walking to get into the forest. These people didn't see a lot of, of, of uh, Caucasians at all. A bare generation earlier, they were headhunters. And, and now your job, your job, now that you've learned their language, is to explain to them electricity. And you mustn't bring any illustrative objects with you. Wires and generators and flashlights. Just just come and explain electricity to them. What will you say? You will say something like this. I have come here to tell you about... Um, you don't have a word for it. We'll make one up. We'll call it electricity in your language. Electricity. Electricity is like a a powerful spirit that runs lickety-split, however you say lickety-split in Neo-Melanesian languages, it runs lickety-split along hard things like vines. Now, these hard things like vines, we, we loop them from tree to tree. Actually, we, we cut down the trees and take off all the branches and then put them in... No, that, that's, we, we loop these hard things like, like vines from tree to tree, and we pump in this electricity, something like a powerful spirit at one end, and then goes through the thatch roof of your mud hut into a little round thing that we, we make in, in big mud huts called factories. And in these little round things up in, your, up in the ceiling of your, your, your thatch roof, um, it goes round and round and round, lickety-split. So you, it, it's like a, a mini sun in your thatch. And, and, and you can stay up late at night. Now, why you'd want to stay up late at night, I'm not sure, but that's what you can do. And it goes into other squarish things with flat, round things on top. It goes around there really, really, really fast, and, and, and it, it heats up so that you can boil water in your clay pots um, without any smoke. In, 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 in your mud hut. I've, I, I've seen these huts. And these huts all have have holes in the center of the thatch. So that the smoke can go up. You can close the holes from now on. You don't need smoke in there anymore. Do, 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 do you see? How, how am I doing in explaining electricity? I haven't said anything yet about uh, the atomic nature of matter and electrons and positive and negative. and I haven't said anything about generation or... AC and DC. I haven't said anything about units of measure, volts and ohms and watts. I haven't said anything about storage. I haven't said anything about uh, the digital world, semi-resistors, and then ultimately computers. I haven't said anything about Boolean algebras without which you cannot talk about semiconductors. I haven't said anything about uh, high-tension voltage. I haven't... What's the matter with these people? Are they stupid? No, of course not. Of course not. If they emigrate to the West, their children can do as well as our children at at any of our schools. The problem is they have no experience of these things. Our our kids don't have to have the innards of technology explained to them for them to use computers more fluently in most cases than their parents. They're they're, they're brought up with things and they, 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 they are the categories that they know and think about. So how will you explain the throne room of God? You see, if I'm reduced to using analogies and symbols and metaphors, when I talk about electricity to those who haven't experienced it, what language will I use when I talk about the throne room of God to people who have never been there? One of the functions of the highly symbol-laden language of the last book of the Bible, and some other parts that are also called apocalyptic literature, is to try to convey in symbol-laden terminology reality that lies just outside our experience in terms that we can understand, but just outside our experience, just the same. There's another thing that you should know about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation rarely quotes the Old Testament in terms of a long snippet, a verse or two, just a couple of times. That's it. But what the book of Revelation regularly does is allude to the Old Testament, it picks up symbols and metaphors and pictures from the Old Testament again and again and again and again so that the better you know the Old Testament, the more you can make sense of the new. It's hard to go for more than a couple of verses in this book without picking up symbols from the Old Testament. I'll show you some of them as we get on. We don't have time to pursue all of them in this, in this uh, pair of chapters, but I'll show you enough of them so you'll see how the book works. Now, there are a couple of other elements in this genre of writing, but I'll pick them up as we go along. So, what do we find then in this vision, Revelation 21 and 22? What you find is in apocalyptic imagery the end of history, the dawning of the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness, the final state toward which Christians press. And what you discover in this symbolism is first, what is new, second, what is symbol-laden about the new Jerusalem, third, what is missing, and fourth, what is central. All right, first of all, what is new? Chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. It's nothing less than a new heaven and a new earth. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. This heavy emphasis on what is new the language, of course, comes from the Old Testament. It's the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 65 that first talks about the new heaven and the new earth. And this language is regularly picked up in the New Testament. For example, in 2 Peter chapter 3, we read, Since everything will be destroyed, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to be, live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. We read a little earlier, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. But in keeping with God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Or sometimes you get a similar picture without the language being used the same way. Here's Paul writing to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I'm getting older. Every time I take a shower, a few more hairs disappear down the plug hole, never to be seen again. I'm facing skin cancer on my face. I've got osteoarthritis. What can I say? I start singing, ever more lustily, change and decay and all around I see. But it's not just personal aging, is it? You get tired of the cycles of violence and corruption and the personal losses, and disease, and death. You begin to understand why the church learned to cry across the centuries. Yes, even so, come, Lord Jesus. How do you describe what that state will be? Well, it's a new heaven and a new earth. Exactly what this will entail is beyond our capacity to imagine Exactly what the relationship between the new heaven and the new earth and our present one is lies at the very periphery of our vision. But there are some details that are given. Did you hear them? Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. What does that mean? Do you see that language is drawn from the Old Testament? You find it as early as Leviticus. Here's Leviticus 26, where God is talking about putting his tabernacle, where he'll presence himself with the people in the tabernacle, with three tribes in the north, three in the south, three in the east, three in the west. And he says, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Same language is here. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. So in terms of, of the old covenant, in terms of the tabernacle, God presencing himself in great glory, that was executed in terms of the tabernacle and later the temple in the Old Testament. But then move forward some centuries to the 6th century before Christ where already you're getting prophecies about the dawning of a new covenant. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. Same language, but now ratcheted up to the intensity of of the new covenant. And then Ezekiel 37, my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And now what do you get here? Verse 3. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Do you see what you get across the Bible storyline are certain images and themes that then get ratcheted up and ratcheted up and ratcheted up and ratcheted up until finally you get to the supreme consummation. And now God is so much with his people. His dwelling place is so much among them that there cannot be anything left of sin and its entailments, of corruption and death. For the very next words we read are these. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's what is meant by the new heaven and the new earth. It won't be the old order anymore. Moreover, this is just the negative side of the new heaven and the new earth. Everything here is couched in negation. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Implication, there'll be some wonderful smiles and laughter. There will be no more death. There'll be life. Or mourning. There will be joy. Or crying or pain. That's still the negation. What there will be instead, as the chapter goes on to cast things in positive light, is glory and health and joy and God-centeredness. For the old order of things has passed away, and we've arrived, arrived at the new heaven and the new earth. And then, of course, built into this description of the new heaven and the new earth is, is talk of this new Jerusalem. Verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then, verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Now, we're not to think that, first of all, you get a whole new creation. And then, in that creation, you get a new Jerusalem that gets parked on the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Um, Because because when you actually read the description of this new Jerusalem, it turns out to be a perfect cube, which is unlike any city I've ever seen, 1,400 miles on edge, which doesn't leave enough room in Israel for the new Jerusalem. Uh, Besides, we'll see in a few moments that these things are symbol-laden in any case. What you have is two separate images. One image of a new heaven and a new earth, and another image of, of the new Jerusalem. Don't try and meld the two together. And then, hang on to your hats, you get a further image, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. I have a word of advice for you. When your bride comes down the aisle, and she finally takes you by the arm, do not gaze deeply into her eyes and say, you remind me of a city. (laughs) Because, you see, one of the things that apocalyptic can do is mix metaphors. It's doing it all the time. We'll we'll, we'll find that this metaphor gets even more confusing in a few moments, and I'll come back to this business of mixed metaphors. And, And each metaphor must make its own contribution to our understanding. Now, again, the notion of a city being the final state, has to be unpacked just a wee bit. For a start, it's a social vision. Now, I was born in Canada. And in Canada, if we have anything, we have space. (laughs) A lot of it's frozen, but we have space. And and so there's there's a Canadian mythology... uh, It existed until fairly recently, and it's still reasonably strong. A Canadian mythology about about what retirement should look like, right on the edge of bliss. And what you want is space, lots of room. The notion of retiring in a big city just seems strange until the recent generation of urban dwellers has has risen. A number of years ago, 10 or 12 or so, I was lecturing in, in Korea. And at this particular school there were some students from India. This is an interesting world where everybody studies everywhere and trains everywhere and teaches everywhere and so on. So I was in Korea teaching some students, mostly Koreans, but some from India. And at one of the meals, this Indian said to me, you come from Canada? I said, yes. The big country, isn't it? Second biggest in the world right after Russia in terms of land space. How many people are there in Canada? Well, at the time, I said, uh, about uh, 30 million, about a tenth the population of the U.S. 30 million? Yes. Oh, you poor man. I said, a bigger pardon? Well, I come from one of the smallest states in India, and we already have 147 million. You come from a big country, and you only have 30. You poor man. And I thought... Oh boy, there's a culture shock going on here. Do you know? I'm, I mean, I I like the space, and he he wants all the people pressed in. Do, 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 do you see? And and so what you really cherish is is partly determined by by culture associations, isn't it? So one of the things that is involved with the fact that this is a city rather than sort of a ranch out in the middle of Nevada somewhere or Arizona is 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 the fact that it's 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 picking up a social vision where the high point for the people of God is the city of God. And that city is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where the temple was finally put. Jerusalem is the place where the Davidic king was. Jerusalem is is bound up with such hope for the future that eventually the prophets start promising a new Jerusalem that has transcendental prospects, not just an historic city on the eastern end of the Mediterranean, but something way beyond that. That's why Paul, writing to the Galatians, can say that that our mother is the new Jerusalem. Our mother is the new Jerusalem, writing to Christians, he says. And this depends on passages like this. Already, um, we discover anticipation in the Old Testament of a new Jerusalem, um, in those days, I will make everything new. I will create a new Zion. They will come and and uh, join me. The ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion. Another word for Jerusalem. With thanksgiving and everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and 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 sighing and sorrow will flee away. Do you, you hear the background there? But it's not just. Um, The negative things, there will be no more pain or crying. Then the positive thing is said in verse five, he was seated on the throne. That is God himself said, I am making everything new. And then almost as if he really wants us to grab hold of it. He says again, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. That is, you've come to the end of the age. That's going to remind any thinking Christian of Jesus' words on the cross. It is finished. The climactic work has been done. And now you come to the end of the age and it's all wrapped up. It really is done. I am Alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. The water of life, picking up imagery, do you see from the book of Genesis? And water without cost, reminding us that the gospel is without cost to us. It's, it's with cost to God himself, but without cost to us, it's given freely, out of grace. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Now, I need to stop there for a moment. I'm reading from the NIV, which, on the whole, I I really like. But at this point, I think they make a mistake in how they translate things. Some translations put it in the singular. The one who is victorious will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The NIV makes it plural to make it children, since there are sons and daughters of God. And in truth, there really are sons and daughters of God. But very frequently, son was used to refer to both in the ancient world. And in this case, you want to keep the word son for a very simple reason. You men, for a moment, I'll come to you women in a moment. You men, you men, how many of you are doing now, vocationally, what your fathers did at the same age? Let me see your hands. Three. Three. You women, how many of you are doing now, vocationally, what your mother did at the same age? Let me see your hands. Two. Do, do you see the point? In, in, an, in a post-industrial world, we have gained fantastic freedoms in terms of pursuing vocations and, and uh, charting courses that are radically different from what our parents pursued. But in the ancient world... If your father was a farmer, chances were overwhelming that you became a farmer. If your father was a baker, you became a baker. Your father's name was Traravarius, you made violins. It it was just inevitable. That's why in a pre-industrial handcraft society, sonship is bound up with more than DNA. You watch the various CSI programs on television, and the way you establish paternity is by DNA. It's got nothing to do with function. But Jesus, during the days of his flesh, was referred to repeatedly as the carpenter's son. And then once Joseph had died, in one remarkable passage in Mark 6, Jesus is referred to himself as the carpenter. That is, he had taken over the family business, presumably when Joseph had gone, until he entered his public ministry. Do do, do you see? He's identified that way. And in any culture where... Your identity with a family is is bound up with, with with function. Then then everything changes. If you're a farmer's son in the first century, you don't go to, to to agricultural college in order to learn how to be a farmer. There isn't one. It's your father who teaches you how to uh, plant seed and when to do it and how to fertilize and how to irrigate and how to build fences and that that's where your shaping is. Do you, do you see it? And you become identified with a family heritage, whether it's making fence posts and, 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 and farming or, or building violins. And out of this then comes an array of biblical metaphors. For example, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God, Matthew chapter 5. The idea is that God is the supreme peacemaker. And insofar as we make peace, we're acting like God. We're acting as if we belong to the God family. That's not saying how you become a Christian. It's not saying that you're saved. It's not saying that you're like God in every respect. But on this particular axis, since he's the supreme peacemaker, if if you make peace, you're acting like God. Do you see? You show yourself to be son of God on that axis. That's why King David and his sons, for example, once they become king then on that day that one ascends the throne and takes on the mantle of the Davidic dynasty, God says, today, I have become your father, you become my son. The idea is that God is the supreme king. He's the one that supremely does rule. And if the human king then reigns righteously with justice and equity and defending the covenant and so on, then, then in that respect, the person is acting like God. Do you see? So a great deal of sonship language in scripture turns on that sort of thing. That's why Paul can write, for example, to people and say, who are the real sons of Abraham? He says the real sons of Abraham are those who act like Abraham, those who display Abraham's faith, not just have Abraham's genes. And and Jesus himself says something similar. If you read John chapter Uh, eight, for example, when Jesus is entering into some sort of dispute with uh, some Jewish leaders at the time, um, Jesus says some very strange things about how Abraham testifies to to Jesus, even though Abraham had been dead for 2,000 years. And and the the, the opponents say, you know, you're only, you're not even 50 years old and and, and Abraham can bear witness to you? Oh yes, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And the opponents can't make sense of this. Don't you understand we're the real children of Abraham? Oh, no, you're not, Jesus says. If you really were children of Abraham, you'd rejoice uh, th- that I'm here. You-, you would recognize who I am. Well, then they say, w- we'll up the ante. We're actually children of God. We're sons of God. Oh, no, you're not, Jesus says. if if. If you were sons of God, you would recognize me. I really do come from God. God knows me. I know him. Heaven is, is my home. That, that, that's my patch. If you were sons of God, you'd recognize me. Let me tell you who your real daddy is, he says. And then he says, you are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a liar from the beginning. You're not telling the truth about me. He was a murderer from the beginning, and you're trying to bump me off. Do, do, do you see? So so that sonship becomes a function much more of of what you do than of mere genes. Now, that's what's going on in this passage. When we become Christians, to use biblical language, we become sons and daughters of God, sons of God in this metaphorical sense. But now this too is ratcheted up. And now God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. That applies equally to men and women. The idea is that now in the consummation, you and I become like God in every way that non-God can be. Now, obviously, there are some ways that we cannot duplicate and shouldn't try. The Bible says, be holy, for I am holy. It does not say, be omnipotent, for I am omnipotent. The Bible tell, tells us where to love one another as God loves. It doesn't tell us where to be omniscient. God has what theologians call incommunicable attributes. That is, attributes of God that cannot be shared. We're not supposed to take those on. And if we try, it's a form of idolatry. But in every way in which we as image bearers of God can reflect God, then on the last day in the new heaven and the new earth, that is the way it will be. We will reflect God perfectly so that we will hear the voice of God saying, I will be his father, and he will be my son. Did you see? That's the positive side of things. Not just no more pain and no more tears and no more death, but mirroring God himself. Over against the terrible list of sins in the following verses. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, and so on they will be consigned to the fiery death of burning sulfur, an absolute dichotomy between those who are sons of God and those who are not. So what is new? A new heaven and a new earth, the new Jerusalem, swept clean of all that defiles with God's people, enjoying God forever and reflecting him. That's what's new. What is symbolic about the new Jerusalem, number two, verses 9 to 21. We'll go a little more rapidly here. We simply don't have time to cover all of these texts. At one level, the language has already been steeped in symbolism. But in what follows the interpreting angel in the vision goes to great lengths to make John reflect on particular elements of the symbolism. Come back to the bride language again. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, that's referring back to chapter 16, came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a high mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city. So we're talking about uh, the bride, the Lamb, and the bride is the wife of the lamb, except the lamb is the holy city. Did you hear the mixture of metaphors? Where does this lamb language come from? In this case, it's been introduced in a great vision in John 4 and 5. John 4, uh, Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation 4 is to Revelation 5 what a setting is to a drama. In Revelation 4, had we time to go through it, we would see how the chapter is full of symbolism that talks about the transcendence of God. He's so awesome and great that even the highest order of angels cover their faces with their wings and cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's the God of all creation. That's Revelation 4. And then the drama begins in chapter 5. In chapter 5, we're told, in the right hand of him who sits in the throne that is, in the right hand of God himself, is a scroll, not a book, but a scroll, with one sheet of papyrus finally wrapping it all up, and it's sealed with seven wax seals down the edge. And in the symbolism of the day, this scroll in the right hand of God contains all of God's purposes for judgment and blessing for the entire universe. And the symbolism demands that God's purposes for judgment and blessing will come to pass only if someone comes and breaks the seals so that the scroll is opened. That's what brings all of God's purposes to pass. And in this vision, God holding the scroll, waiting, as it were, for someone to bring all of his purposes to pass, upsteps steps. An angel with a loud voice who challenges the entire universe. He needs a loud voice because PA systems hadn't been invented yet. If I want to get a little louder, I just get a little closer to the microphone, do you see? And, and I, or they can crank me up back there. They just had a heart attack back there wanting to turn me down. <laughs> but, but you see, this angel doesn't have those options. So he says it in a loud voice that challenges the entire universe. Who is worthy to approach such a God as this? Just described in chapter 4. And, and, and take the scroll from the hand of God and, and break the seals and thus bring all of God's purposes to pass. Who is worthy? Well, in the vision, the highest order of angels dare not look at God. They, they cover their faces with their wings. They, they cannot gaze on him. So who's the cocksure person who's going to strut up to God and say, hey, I'll do it, no problem, just give me that book, I'll, I'll, I'll break those seals. But no one is found who is worthy. No angelic being, no human being, no necromancer in the abode of the dead. Nobody is found who is worthy. So John begins to weep. He weeps. He weeps not because he's a nosy Parker who's frustrated because he can't see into the future. He weeps because under the symbolism of this vision, God's purposes for judgment and blessing will not take place which means everything that's happened is meaningless. The, the universe is nothing more than bouncing quarks. It, it's, it's nothing more than matter and energy and space and time without significance. It's, it's, it's got no guarantee that justice will prevail. It's, it's, it's got no guarantee that right will triumph. It's, it's got no guarantee that evil will be exposed. Nothing. It's, it, it's, it's just a frustrating place. And one of the interpreting elders taps John on the shoulder and says, John, stop your crying. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the scroll. Now, the lion of the tribe of Judah means the king. The lion then, as now, was the king of the beast of the tribe of Judah. The king from the tribe of Judah, that means the Davidic king, he has prevailed to open the scroll. The promised Messiah, the Davidic king, has prevailed to open the scroll. So I look, John says, and I saw a lamb. What is announced to him is a lion. What he sees is a lamb. We're not supposed to think of two animals parked side by side. The point is, the lion is the lamb. That's what you can do in apocalyptic. You can mix your metaphors. Do you see? I have been to some marvelous cathedrals in Britain where in stained glass windows, they sometimes have images of, of a lion lamb, half lion, half lamb, in the stained glass windows. I know what they're trying to do, but I want to say, That's ridiculous. I mean, he, he's not 50% lion and 50% lamb, and you have to decide which end is which. I mean, <laughs> do, how, how do you do that? Do you, do you see, it's, it's why apocalyptic imagery really cannot be successfully portrayed in visual art. It is best portrayed in words, precisely because you can mix your metaphors, but you can't paint that sort of thing. If you try any sort of visual display that I can think of at least, it's going to come out half and half or 30, 70 or something. Do do, do you see? But the point is the lion is the lamb. And... And, and a slaughtered lamb at that, so a sacrificial lamb, because he's the one who has borne our sins. But he's got seven horns coming out of his head, and a horn in apocalyptic regularly signifies kingly authority. He's got a perfection of kingly authority, and so he's a lion after all. But he comes from the very throne room of God. He comes from the center of the throne. He doesn't have to approach from the outside, through the thunder and the lightning, all the rest of these things, to approach this transcendent God. He comes from the throne it- itself. That That is, it's another way of saying that he himself is one with God. Do you Did you see all these images parked one on top of another, one on top of another? Talk of light, for example, Isaiah 60 says, "'Arise, shine,' this is about Jerusalem, about Zion, "'for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord, the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. The sun will no longer be your light by day.'" nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord himself will be your light. And then all of these other symbol-laden structures. Notice all the twelves, 12 gates, 12 foundations. You're supposed to pick up 12 patriarchs from the old covenant people, 12 apostles from the new. It's a way of signaling that all of the old covenant and the new covenant people of God will be there. Or the gate, or the wall that is 144 cubic uh, cubits thick. Um, for, for those who are mathematically challenged, 12 times 12 is 144. It's another way of getting 12 and 12 together again, do you see? All of the old covenant people of God, the new covenant people of God. I wish I had more time to unpack these particular stones. I'm going to skip them, although they're very interesting. The city is made of pure gold people walking on gold, that comes from the fact that when the temple was built by Solomon, he actually made the floor. We're told he covered the floors of both the inner and outer rooms with gold so that the priests and their service walked constantly before God on gold. But the most stunning thing about this city is that it's built like a cube. For one reason or another, I get to fly into a lot of airports And you you come into Chicago on a clear day, and you see the city with all of its skyscrapers by the lake. It really is a three-dimensional city, but it's not a cube. It was a clear day when I flew into San Francisco today. You see the water, the bay. Not so many skyscrapers, but enough. It's a big city. It's not built like a cube. I was in L.A. last weekend, downtown area. doesn't look like a cube to me. Imagine saying that a city looks like a cube. Boy, that'll really turn you on, isn't it? Except you ask yourself, where does this come from? And, and in the Old Testament, there's only one cube, just one cube. That cube is the most holy place in the temple. The temple was built three times as long as it was wide. And two-thirds of it was the holy place where there are certain rituals that took place. And behind the curtain was the most holy place, as wide and as long as it was high, the only cube mentioned in the Old Testament, the place where God met with his people through the mediation of the high priest once a year by the sacrifice that God himself prescribed on the Day of Atonement. That's it. But now the whole city is built like a cube. It's a way of saying... All of God's people are immediately in the presence of God without need for a mediating priest. It's the same symbol-laden power as what we're told happened when Jesus died on the cross. He released his spirit, he died, and the veil of the temple was rent in twain with an earthquake that shook the building to its foundations. In other words, the way into the most holy place was opened up so that God's people could be in the immediate presence of God. We don't need mediating sacrifices anymore. It's already been paid for. We are already in the presence of the living God. That's what the new Jerusalem will be like. So it's not just streets of gold so that we're all occupying a a certain amount of wealth. That's not the idea. The point is that the temple was covered with gold so that the priests walked on it. Now we're all walking on what the priests walked on because we all have access to the very presence of God. Do Do you see? We're always there in the most holy place, in the cube, all the time. But inevitably, I should say something about what is missing from this vision. Verses 22 to 27. Four things. Number one, there's no temple. Verse 22 I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And now you're actually being asked to think through the storyline of the Bible. How does, how does the temple play out in the Bible storyline? There are temple imagery, imageries all the way back in creation. But, but begin with the tabernacle. that God ordains the, the building of the tabernacle at the time of the exodus and the giving of the law. And it functioned as I've just described. The glory of God was upon it. And There were various daily and weekly rituals. And once a year, the high priest and only the high priest with the prescribed blood of bull and goat could go into the most holy place and sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant. As a way of saying that these animals have, have borne our sins and have died our death so that we might go free, the priest does this both for his own sins and for the sins of the people. Eventually, the tabernacle is, is displaced by the temple that Solomon builds. And once again, the glory of God comes down upon the building at the time of its dedication so powerfully that the priests are forced to flee and and hide outside it It, 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 because the the glory of God is so transcendentally blinding. It's it's so powerful that, that people are actually frightened of such a God. But eventually, the Davidic dynasty decays. There's corruption everywhere. Many of the people are carted off into exile. Jerusalem is still left. The temple is still there. Ezekiel starts preaching. He's already in exile. He starts preaching and saying, don't you know God is going to abandon this temple? And the people say, how could God abandon the temple? That would would be like abandoning his promises. How could God abandon Jerusalem? That's the capital city. That's the city of the great king. How could God give up his temple? He will surely secure his temple. Surely, surely. And Ezekiel keeps on preaching and says, no, no. Everything is so corrupted, only judgment is what you can expect now. And then he has this spectacular vision in Ezekiel 8 through 11, in which, in spirit, he's transported 700 miles from the banks of the Kabar River to Jerusalem to witness the shocking idolatry and corruption and murder and sacrilege that's absolutely everywhere in the city, bound up with the royal family, bound up with the priests, bound up with the temple service. And in this vision, he sees the glory of God abandoning the temple, moving to a mobile throne chariot which takes him outside the city of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives and parks there and waits. It's a symbol-laden way of saying God is abandoning the city. God is abandoning the temple so that if Nebuchadnezzar the monarch of the Babylonian regional superpower, comes in and takes the city. It's not because God isn't strong enough, but because God himself has pronounced judgment on it. And eventually Jerusalem is destroyed. Weeks and weeks later, the news reaches Ezekiel and his friends by the banks of the Kebar River. But during those weeks, God has given another message to Ezekiel to give to these exiles who are going to feel devastated when Jerusalem is down, when the temple is destroyed, because now they have no home to go back home to. As long as Jerusalem stood and the temple was there, they could still hope that God would save them, that God maybe would release them from slavery. Maybe they'd return to the promised land. Now they've got no home to go home to. And God says through Ezekiel to them in chapter 11. Don't you understand, God says, I will be a sanctuary to you. In other words, the real sanctuary is not where the temple is. The real sanctuary is where God is. Oh, I know the history becomes complicated and after a while and some people are returned and another small temple was built and so on. But six centuries after Ezekiel, on the streets of Jerusalem, another voice was heard saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. Which temple? The new temple in Jerusalem? The disciples didn't have a clue what Jesus was talking about. I bet you they were muttering under their breath, deep, deep, Deep. More enigmatic sayings from the master. Deep. We'll understand someday. But John comments as he reports all of this in John chapter 2. He says, after Jesus had risen from the dead, then they remembered his words and they believed the scriptures. They understood that he was talking about himself as the temple of God. In other words, the temple was the place where God, in his holiness, met with sinners around the sacrifice that Christ himself had prescribed. But now, Jesus is the place where God meets with sinners around the sacrifice that God himself has prescribed, which is also Jesus. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it again. Other imagery tracks on and tracks on until eventually you come to this picture in Revelation 21 and 22. I saw no temple in that city. You're already in the most holy place. And the Lord God and the Lamb are its temple. You've got rid of mediation and bricks and mortar. And now you're in the very presence of God. And similarly... I saw no light, no sun, no moon, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Now, here again, you need to be careful. In the very first verse of this chapter, we read, I saw a new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So, no longer any sea in chapter 21 at the beginning, and now no longer any sun and moon. What's going on here? Now, I mentioned that I, I was born in Canada. I was brought up in French Canada. So, so I was brought up with the poetry and so on of the French side. But when I was on the English side, my parents were both from the United Kingdom. And, and the United Kingdom, at the end of the day, is a smallish country that is nothing more than a couple of big islands. So bound up with English and British mythology is the seafaring conqueror. So I learned this sort of poetry when I was a child. I must go down to the sea again, to the lonely sea in the sky, and all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by, and so on. John Macefield. But the Israelites were not a seafaring people. They were hopeless at it. When eventually some of their monarchs did manage to build some ships, they had to hire sailors from elsewhere. And and, and as a result, biblical imagery regarding the sea does not suggest Adventure, expansion, courage, beauty, nature. No, 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 no. The sea in in, in biblical imagery is bound up with chaos and death and danger. So read, for example, the last verse of Isaiah chapter 57. There we read these words, the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Believe me, that's not John Maysfield. So when we read, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and there was no more sea, it's not talking about the hydrological principles that prevail. It's talking symbolism to say there's no more chaos. There's no more mud and mire. There's no more destruction. And likewise, when we come to the sun and the moon, we're not here talking about astronomical principles of the new heaven and the new earth, in which the author simply isn't interested. We're talking about the fact that here, the sun and the moon give us light and darkness, day and night. And so often, you see, for us, especially in the ancient world where there was no electric light, The daylight was bound up with what was done in the light, what was done cleanly. And at night, that's when you got the thugs out and the criminals and the corruption. So that light and darkness bound up with good and evil. And so our sun and our moon are used on those sort of cyclical symbolic levels. But in those days, there will be neither sun nor moon for the Lord God Almighty will be its light. Which is why you then move immediately to the next one. There will be no night there. That is, there will be no time of corruption. The gates are always open. That is, the gates were closed at night to keep bad guys out so the city wouldn't be attacked. And finally, there is no impurity there. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be absolutely pure? Never, ever, ever to have told a lie. Never, ever, ever to have lusted. Never, ever, ever to have hated. Never, ever, ever to have nurtured bitterness. Never, ever, ever, even in imagination to have uttered profanity. Never, ever, ever to have been covetous or envious. Never, ever, ever to have been arrogant or proud. And that's just the negative side of holiness. What would it be like always, always, always to have loved God with heart and soul and mind and strength? Always to have loved your neighbor as yourself. And that's what it'll be like. Because nothing impure will ever enter there. And the transformation will be so complete that far from being an empty promise, this will simply be our daily experience. Now, you see, if you really do love your sin, this won't be attractive to you. If deep down, you'd rather nurture your bitterness, thank you. Then this won't be attractive to you. If deep down, you'd rather be seething in lust, this won't be attractive to you. But if you want to say with an ancient hymn writer, Lord, make me pure. For all my ways of darksome being, whether by earthquake, wind or fire, Lord, make me clean. Lord, make me clean. And this looks pretty good. It's not just that there's no more external consequence to sin. Death, sorrow, pain. The old order has passed away. We've already seen that. But there's no more sin. Sin. There's no impurity. Nothing of that sort at all. That's what's missing from heaven. And finally, what is central... Well, at the beginning verses of chapter 22, there are two things that are mentioned. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the tree stood the tree of life bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The tree of life, where does that imagery come from? Again, the first three chapters of Genesis, do you see? The tree of life that sustains life, it all comes from the throne of God. It's nurtured by water from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's a way of taking us back to the cross again and again and again. It's taking us back to the vision of chapters 4 and 5, where it is the Lamb who brings about all of God's purposes and redemption and judgment, and utter transformation of the universe. So the water of life from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And finally, the high point in this entire vision, verses 4 and 5 they will see his face. It is what theologians across the centuries have called the beatific vision. That is the vision of absolute blessedness. Many times when we think of the new heaven and the new earth, especially if we have been bereaved, we think of the prospect of seeing loved ones again. And so we should. But without in any sense wanting to take away from that anticipation, I must tell you that that's not what this passage talks about. It presupposes it. You can find it elsewhere. But what is really the focus here instead is, we shall see his face. Do you know? It's not just human beings who have fallen. Angels have fallen. Otherwise, you can't even make sense of Genesis 3, let alone a long history of what else is said about fallen angels. But there is not a hint anywhere in Scripture that a Redeemer has arisen for fallen angels. Not one. A Redeemer has arisen for us. And even the unfallen angels... Who are in the presence of God day and night, the highest order of whom are described in the vision of Revelation 4 and 5. We read that they cover their faces with their wings. They do not ever dare gaze upon God. But we human beings do. Made in the image of God, so transformed that we will reflect Him perfectly, we will be His Son. And we will gaze upon him and even that gaze will be inescapably, unimaginably blessed. It is the beatific vision. That's why we used to sing older songs like, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus, or face to face with Christ my Savior, face to face. What will it be when with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ who died for me? I seem to spend a fair bit of my time flying here and there to speak somewhere or other. But every once in a while, I'm just driving somewhere. It's, it's not too far away, and I get in the car and drive there and, then my musical tastes turn out to be desperately eclectic. So what music I bring with me in the car varies quite a lot. It is painfully eclectic. Not too long ago, I put in a recording of Roger Whitaker. Roger Whitaker is a South African who sings folk music from all around the world. Folk music from country after country after country. And I rather like his raw voice. On this occasion, he was singing a a Canadian folk piece, so it was bound to be good. It it was a song of Cape Breton. Maybe some of you have visited it. In the third stanza of the song of Cape Breton, Roger Whitaker sings, If my life could end perfectly, I know how I'd want it to be. God's gift of heaven would be made up of three my love, Cape Breton, and me. And I thought to myself, my dear Roger Whitaker, you've just about defined hell. <laughs> because Roger Whitaker and his love would breed like rabbits. Another generation of sinners. And before long, you'd have the threat of nuclear holocaust again, and endless war and rumors of war and hate all over again because the heart of the new heaven and the new earth is not Cape Breton, even with Roger and his love. No, 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 no. They will see his face. And it will be utterly transporting, which is still the hope for Christians everywhere to join hands and cry before God, even so, yes, Come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. O Lord God, open our eyes to see the wonderful things about the new heaven and the new earth that your word discloses. So much so that while we're trying to be faithful here, we will genuinely recognize that our home is elsewhere. Here we have no continuing city. We hear voices around us, Lord God, that warn us not to be so heavenly-minded where we're no earthly good. But we know our own hearts well enough to know that there's a far greater danger of being so earthly-minded that we're good for neither heaven nor earth. Help us, therefore, to return to the words of the Master and to lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrode, where thieves do not dig through and steal. Nurture within us this great treasure, for where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And for those, Lord God, in this small assembly who face the pressures of cancer, deep uncertainty, emotional instability, who feel the corruption of their own natures, the burden of their own sin, the loss of staggering bereavement. O Lord God, open their eyes and let them see. And in the midst of tears, rejoice. For Jesus' sake. Oh, Amen. My wife constantly warns me that I rabbit on too long. But we will take 10 minutes for questions, and that's all. 10 minutes, and then we'll draw a line under it. If you'd like to ask a question, it would be very helpful if you use that central microphone. If that is too daunting, stand up where you are, and I'll repeat it. But... Um, if you can use that phone, you can be preserved for posterity. The first courageous customer. (laughs) Well, I'm kind of embarrassed to ask
2: the question because it can seem like a person's unclear on the concept. But um, do you think that there'll be free will in heaven? And, And so, you know, I kind of wrote down notes to couch the question a little bit more. I mean, one of the common defenses for... Uh, the problem of pain is the free will defense and it's even celebrated in that um, that God would create agents with free will um, to give him glory when they do is greater than creating robots. And so, you know, in this broken world, uh, we, we even us followers of Christ, we, we still sin. And Paul puts it in Romans, you know, I do what I do not want to do um, and, you know, you've described how, yeah, we'll, we'll be transformed, but uh, I think of how even uh, Lucifer or Adam and Eve who, you know, they Adam and Eve walked with God, Lucifer was in God's presence, but they still chose to turn away. Um,
1: if the point of the question is, Will there be any possibility of falling ever again? No. Now, I think that that question can be broken down into various components that would take much too long to engage upon tonight. When people speak of free will, they can mean one of three quite different things. Um, one is power to contrary, absolute power to contrary. I don't think human beings ever have that. Another is they do what they really do want to do. I think we always have that. And in the new heaven and the new earth, we'll all so have free will in that sense, but we'll never ever want to do anything that's wicked, any more than Christ ever wants to do anything that's wicked. And there's another one on top of all of that. So um, uh, if the point of the question is, will there be any possibility whatsoever for failure or fall again, the answer is no. We will be forever perfectly secured. Another? Yes. It has
0: never occurred to me to interpret 21 1 any other way out the river. And you said that the word sea there doesn't refer to the literal sea, but to chaos and wickedness and muck and mire. What then is the principle of interpretation that we must remember when we seek to read and understand and interpret the Revelation?
1: Very good question. The question is, um, uh, it never occurred to this brother to interpret C as anything other than a literal C if, in fact, it is symbol-laden. What is the ground for such interpretation? What uh, hermeneutical, what interpretive principle uh, applies that we can justify that sort of thing? Let me come at it through the side door, if I may. Instead of talking directly about that, let me talk about another Uh, area of apocalyptic literature. Um, And that is the numbers in apocalyptic literature. I insist that most numbers in Scripture are not symbol-laden. For example, in John 21, we're told that there are 153 fish. I keep files of strange interpretations I have read, and my file on the 153 fish is very thick. (laughs) Did you know, for example that 153 is the triangular number of 17. That means that if you put a dot, and the next row, two dots, the next row, three dots, and the next row, four dots, and so on, until you have 17 dots on each side of an equilateral triangle, there'll be 153 dots in, in the whole. 153 is the triangular number of 17. 17 is 7 plus 10. 10 is the number of the Ten Commandments. 7 is the number of perfection. It's made up of 3 plus 4. 3 is the number of the Trinity. 4 is the number of the city built four square, the church. So, the 153 fish represent being made fishers of men, that is, doing evangelism in the name of the Trinity, so as to build the church four square and teach the Ten Commandments. Now, I bet I I bet I could teach that with a straight face in most of our churches, and people would say, Hey man, preach it, brother. But the real reason why there are 153 fish there is because there's one more than 152 and one fewer than 154. And somebody said, boy, that's a lot of fish. Let's count them. And they found there were 153. You know? So you, you cannot make, make numbers symbolic of, of things all the time in the scripture. And if you do, you end up with the most fantastic constructions. But apocalyptic is different. Apocalyptic as a genre of literature, as a kind of writing, is full of symbol-laden tens, threes. Twelves, 12 times 12, that sort of thing. It's just about impossible not to see it because uh, after a while you recognize that that's what apocalyptic does. Another thing that apocalyptic does is use certain standard symbols. For example, the horn. It doesn't mean literal horns are growing out of the lamb's head. You, presumably you're not taking that literally. You, you're seeing that horn is a standard symbol in apocalyptic for, for, for a, a kingly authority. So this is perfection of kingly authority. And and, and 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 moreover, you, you don't have to worry about having a half lion and a half lamb because you see that in, in apocalyptic literature, the symbols cast their own contribution and you can have mixed metaphors. You, you can't have a lot of mixed metaphors in ordinary prose without really hurting your head, did you see? Whereas in apocalyptic, you, you, you relish it. It's the way it's, it's put together. So it's after you see more and more and more of the way these things work in apocalyptic, and you see the way the book of Revelation actually harks back to the Old Testament again and again and again with choice phrases and words picking out of, uh, coming out of the Old Testament, you see how those things are used in context in the Old Testament that you begin to make these judgments. So in other words, the hermeneutical principle is it's a f- kind of writing whose symbol-laden force you can discern by simply paying attention, close attention to the way the book works, especially in the way it quotes the Old Testament. So it's not arbitrary. It's not something I've just made up. Oh, I think that C ought to represent chaos. No, you can see that C regularly is not a high value in the Old Testament. It does represent chaos, and so on again, and again, and again, and again. And in a book that's full of mixed metaphors and and the like, it seems to me the most obvious uh, uh, inference to draw. That's one of the big factors. You can take another genre of literature. You can sometimes see it more clearly when you, when you look at other genres besides just apocalyptic. Let me give you one more example so you think you will be assured that I'm not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Um, here is the prophecy of Jeremiah. Now, this is poetry now. Prophecy of Jeremiah. Cursed be the day I was born. This is Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 14. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning a battle cry at noon, for he did not kill me in the womb with my mother as my grave, her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Okay, now preach that literally. Number one. Jeremiah wishes his mother had been eternally pregnant. Number two, Jeremiah pronounces a curse on the poor character who happened to bring his father the news that Jeremiah was born. Number three, that's not what you do with it. This is the language in poetry of saying, I wish I had never been born. That's what he means by saying that he wishes his mother had never given birth. He's not really calling down a literal curse on the head of the poor character who's actually stuck with the job of bringing his father the news. It's a a way of cursing his birth and everything associated with it because he's had such a miserable life that he wishes he had never been born in the first place. And he doesn't think God is fair. But but, but you, you see that pretty straightforward because it's poetry. It's the, it's, it's the language of outraged poetry, of lament, bitter lament, and outraged poetry. And you can see it pretty clearly. So just to, just to say, oh, it's got to be literal, it's got to be literal, it's got to be literal, without, without seeing how language is, is used in different ways, um, usually they're pretty, they're pretty straightforward. When Jesus says, I am the door, with respect, he doesn't mean that he's flat on both sides, turns on hinges and squeaks. Do, 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 do you see? It's a metaphor, and you can see it pretty straightforwardly, pretty clearly. And I would argue similarly that you can see how the metaphors work in the book of, of, of Revelation once you get used to that kind of literature just a wee bit. Last but not least. Hello. Hello.
2: Um, so I want to know what differentiates between a son or daughter of God
1: to a son or daughter of the devil? Good question. What's the, how do you differentiate between son and daughter of God or son or daughter of the devil? If you're talking, let, let me say, first of all, uh, sun language is used in, in a lot of different contexts with different associations. But the most basic distinction is this. Uh, sun is bound up with function, most commonly. Now, sometimes it's bound up with ontology. That is what it actually will actually be. But when it's, when it's just a question of function, it's this. Are you acting like God on a particular axis or are you acting like the devil on a particular axis? That's it, as simple as that. Now, you, you, you can find other language in the New Testament. If I were d- dealing with a whole disquisition on sonship, then I'd point out there's, there's new birth language so that you can be regenerated so as to have the power to act more and more like God. You, 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 that, that's true. But at the most fundamental level, the answer to your question is the one who acts like God on a particular axis is said to be the son of God. And the one who acts like the devil on a particular axis is on that axis said to be the son of the devil.
2: So if, so if someone that is acting like God, but doesn't, they act how God would, want one to act but doesn't believe in God, his name is, they're not welcome in
1: heaven. Well, that's why I kept saying on a particular axis. Mm-hmm. I mean, Christians often speak of common grace. That is grace that God gives to all people commonly. So that there are all kinds of people who do all kinds of good things for all kinds of reasons. Uh, médecins sans frontières, Doctors Without Borders, for example, do all kinds of good things. Insofar as they're doing some good thing in kindness, that, that, that on that front means that on that front, on that axis, they're acting like God. But what is finally depicted is on every axis that human beings can be like God. They are like God. And that comes about in the New Testament because of the transformation of the gospel. He, the gospel reconciles us to God. It empowers us to change. And at the end of the day, we will be transformed so that all the sin and dross and stuff will be burned off. And on every front, God will say, as it were, I will be his God. He will be my son. So there, 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 there is... If you just say that somebody's done an act of kindness, therefore, in this respect, they've acted like God, therefore, on this axis, they are sons of God, therefore, they're saved, you've gone way beyond anything that the Bible says about sonship language, and in flat contradiction to a lot of other things that it says.
2: Okay. So, so the, on the other hand, though, if someone does act in the way of God, you can't go to the point of saying if they act the way of God and that on an axis of that, that, you can't put them in the same category of murderers and adulterers and who are going to burn in this sulfur of hell, right? So you can't put
1: them on on that side of the same question, you know? Depends what you mean. Um, After all, um, the most basic sin in the Bible is not believing God and loving him with heart and soul and mind and strength. That's why Jesus says that the first commandment is to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. And that means that the first sin is not to love God with heart and soul and mind. It is the first and supreme rebellion. If you say, are there different degrees of punishment? Yes, there are. Read Luke chapter 12, verses 48 and 49. We're told some will be punished with more blows and some with fewer blows. But on the other hand, the most fundamental sin, the sin that we always commit when we commit any other sin, from covetousness to murder to rape to anything else, the first sin that we commit, the most fundamental sin, the one that is always committed with any other sin, is not to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength, because it's the supreme idolatry. And all of us are guilty of that one. All of us, without exception. Which is why the prophet Isaiah can speak of all our righteousness as being as filthy rags. Even the good things that we do so often are are contaminated with, uh, you know, you do something really kind for a neighbor, fellow student or whatever, and then, of course, you ruin it by patting yourself on the back for having done something really kind to a, you know. I mean, we're so full of self-corruptions and inconsistencies, aren't we? If, at the end of the day, we have to depend on our goodness to get to God, we're a damned breed.